the garden. The eyes to the right, 438. The nose to the left, 20. So the eyes have it. The eyes have it. Unlock. The UK is heading for a general election, and campaigning has begun. But given this will be the first December election in the UK since 1923, there are some practical issues for politicians and activists to contend with like the prospect of door-knocking in the cold and dark. So where else can the political parties get their messages across? You guessed it, social media. It's a really unmediated channel, so you can directly target a message that you want to a specific group of voters with a high level of precision. So it's a really good way of them getting their message across exactly how they want without having to rely on intermediaries like the traditional media. But what will these campaigns look like? Facebook's relaxed rules on political ads are drawing scrutiny as the 2020 presidential race heats up. According to the news... At the start of October, the news broke that Facebook had quietly created an exemption that allows politicians and parties to run paid-for political ads even if they contain misleading or even verifiably untrue information. This decision angered a lot of people, including some of Facebook's own employees. Right, so Facebook employees have signed a letter to Mark Zuckerberg and posted it on an internal message board for employees of the company, just calling on him to change the policy that allows false claims and political ads on the platform. Mark Zuckerberg, as he often does when defending a controversial company decision, framed the issue as being about freedom of expression. He also said... I don't think most people want to live in a world where you can only post things that tech companies judge to be 100% true. People grumbled, American politicians tried to prove the absurdity of it all, but no one offered an alternative. Until... Twitter says it will stop all political advertising. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I look at a tale of two platforms, and how any decision by big tech might influence an already unpredictable general election. This is Chips With Everything. That's your first time on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. It is, yes. Thank you for having me. You obviously write a lot of articles. Carrie Paul is one of The Guardian's technology reporters based on the West Coast. She recently wrote about a letter signed by more than 250 Facebook employees informing Mark Zuckerberg of their discomfort at his decision to allow politicians to run ads on the platform without any fact-checking. Well, Mark Zuckerberg has been very adamant that he believes in freedom of speech and that freedom of speech extending to politicians and political figures is an important tenant for him just as a use of Facebook being able to allow people to communicate. So he has claimed that political speech on the platform is more protected than other types of speech. One of Facebook's defences is that not all political ads can be posted with inaccuracies, only those ones that are paid for by politicians currently in office or running for office and political parties. So in other words, if you or I wanted to post a political ad that did include misinformation, it would be taken down. So who is it who checks who is posting these ads? Facebook has a team of a lot of, obviously, thousands of moderators on the platform. Um, Zuckerberg has said numerous times that it's not about the money, it's about the tenets of 
free speech, and that's why he allows political ads to run, even if they have inaccuracies in them. So it's all part of the system that he's continuing to back. When the story broke of this change in the rules, a Facebook spokesman said, quote, We don't believe that it's an appropriate role for us to referee political debates, nor do we think it would be appropriate to prevent a politician's speech from reaching its audience and being subject to public debate and scrutiny. But then some of the company's staff wrote a letter disagreeing with that opinion. So what did the letter say? Yeah, so the letter that the employees signed to Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook as a company expressed concern about Facebook being on track to undo the great strides it's done um, over the last few years regarding integrity and election misinformation. The employees were saying that this is a threat for what Facebook stands for. If Facebook says it stands for free speech, this kind of folds into that and they need to police it in a, in a more effective way. Given this sentiment that staff believe that the company is on track to undo the progress that it has made in integrity, is there a sense that Zuckerberg tends to just make decisions without any insight as to what they would mean, not just in the wider context for politics and so on, but for his own employees? There seems to be some frustration among employees about how Facebook is run. It's such a huge company, and Zuckerberg's obviously a very public figure at the front of it. So it is kind of what what he says goes, but there is a growing movement, I think, in the tech world for employees to speak out against management at these companies. We've seen it at Amazon. We've seen it at Microsoft. We've seen it at Google. And we're seeing a huge effort among tech workers to organize walkouts and write these petitions when they find something upsetting about the way it's being run. At the time of recording this, has Facebook responded to the letter? Facebook has not yet responded to this letter. It was only signed by a few hundred employees out of, you know, more than 39,000 full-time employees at Facebook. So it's possible that they didn't see it or that they're, you know, pretending that they didn't see it, but they have not responded yet. But someone else saw an opportunity and seized it. Hi, Alex. Thanks for coming in on such short notice. We are really hoping that nobody else in big tech makes any sweeping announcements about political ads before the show comes out. It's been a newsy week. (laughs) Isn't it always? Um, But tell us, do you remember where you were when you saw Jack Dorsey's tweet? Uh, I I do. The Guardian's UK tech editor, Alex Hearn, was in the gym when he saw Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's thread announcing that the company will ban all political advertising on its platform worldwide. It came out of nowhere. Um, I I really wasn't expecting it, particularly given jumping ahead. The thing that it's clearly a spoiler for was Facebook's results, which happened about an hour later. So all eyes were on Facebook, not Twitter. It, It was supposed to be Mark Zuckerberg's day to shine. And then Jack Dorsey dives in and and spoils everything Mark's got planned. Okay, let's go through it then, because the announcement was made in a 10-part thread. The first tweet says, We've made the decision to stop all political advertising on Twitter globally. We believe political message reach should be earned, not bought. Why? A few reasons, dot, dot, dot. And then the thread emoji. So what's his first reason? So his, his first big reason was essentially that paying for reach breaks what makes Twitter good. He wanted to incentivize a world where if a political candidate gets a lot of reach, they get it through being retweeted a lot or people, a lot of people choosing to follow them. And if you sell reach rather than encouraging people to earn it organically through Twitter's own processes, then one thing you can do is you can push messages on them that would never be retweeted, that people would never follow. You can push highly partisan or highly inflammatory messages on people who 
are going to be inflamed by them. Now, obviously, we can't prove this, but this has got to be a dig at Facebook's policy, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, putting the timing aside, that that lovely hour preempting of Facebook's quarterly results, it's got some of the most explicit digs from one CEO to another that I've seen coming out of Silicon Valley since I think Tim Cook decided to go after Mark Zuckerberg and Google on privacy grounds earlier this year. Further down the thread, he says, For instance, it's not credible for us to say we're working hard to stop people from gaming our systems to spread misleading info. But, lots of views, if someone pays us to target and force people to see their political ad, well, they can say whatever they want. Winky emoji. (laughs) Winky emoji. Yeah, and that seems to make sense. I mean, it is, in fact, it it is a, a parody quote of what Zuckerberg does basically say. Dorsey is attacking Mark Zuckerberg's argument that political advertising can work hand-in-hand with a decision to reduce misinformation. In fact, although Dorsey doesn't explicitly address it, it's a problem that Twitter's never even had. Facebook is the company that took the very public decision to allow misinformation in political advertising. Twitter, because it doesn't ban misinformation full stop, (laughs) has never actually had to tackle that dilemma. Facebook walked itself into this trap, defended itself ineptly, (laughs) and and Jack Dorsey's making hay from that. In the same thread, Dorsey admitted that, quote, we're well aware we are a small part of a much larger political advertising ecosystem. In general terms, Twitter is quite a lot smaller than Facebook anyway. It has somewhere in the order of a fifth of the active users. Obviously, one thing that Twitter does have is a massively disproportionate effect on journalism and Mm. on the political and media discourse in general, which is one reason why this ban is quite important. But to put it in in a sense of proportion, Facebook later on discussed the fact that no more than half a percent of their revenue comes from political adverts. On Twitter, the scale is more like across the whole of the EU, there are 21 political advertisers who have run adverts in the last week. (laughs) 21. And none of them are in the UK. Political advertising on Twitter is essentially a hobby. And there's a reason why it's very easy for them to turn it off as a result. How has the world responded to Dorsey's thread? Is Twitter now the good guy in everyone's eyes? We, at the time of recording, (laughs) are edging into the backlash to the backlash section. Mm -hmm. Initially, Twitter was widely praised for this move. The next wave of criticism that is, is cresting as I speak now is around the fact that Twitter's not just banned political adverts, it's banned issue adverts, which cover topics that are not directly to do with elections or political candidates, but are instead controversial legislative issues of national importance, as Twitter's chief counsel puts it. Right. So, yeah, Vidya Gardi tweeted that these issue ads includes ads that advocate for or against legislative issues of national importance. And one of the listed issues is climate change, which has proven quite controversial. Exactly. We do seem to end up in a situation where Shell can buy adverts on Twitter encouraging you to buy more petrol, but you cannot buy adverts on Twitter encouraging people to buy less petrol Mm. because one of those would of necessity talk about climate change and become a political advert. The other one would merely be an advert for oil. Dorsey ended the thread with, A final note. This isn't about free expression. This is about paying for reach. And paying to increase the reach of political speech has significant ramifications that today's democratic infrastructure may not be prepared to handle. 
it's worth stepping back in order to address. Alex doesn't think that Twitter's announcement will convince Zuckerberg that his company should also take a step back. The big difference between Dorsey and Zuckerberg on this stance isn't really revenue, as best I can tell. Facebook makes a lot more money than Twitter from political adverts, but Facebook makes a lot more money. And half a percent of revenue is still millions and millions of dollars, primarily because US political advertising is awash with money. But it's enough that Mark Zuckerberg could forego it if he decided it was easy. But I think there is a fundamental problem that if you don't defend political advertising, it raises harder questions about what the value of advertising in general is. Exactly the same reasons why one would defend building what Facebook is, which is a gigantic advertising platform, apply to political adverts. And at times, Facebook has expressed that, that advertising is really good for small businesses to get off the ground. It's an engine of the American economy. Those same defences of advertising apply to political advertising. And if you give ground on the politics side, you start to give ground on everything else. If you go, well, actually, maybe speech shouldn't be tied to money. That's what advertising is. Advertising is about tying reach to money, fundamentally by its very nature. And so I think Mark Zuckerberg, no matter how much stress he gets, he won't concede that base ground because he can't concede that base ground. A friend of ours called Jack's move, shooting into the biggest open goal ever. Would you say that this is just a fundamental difference between two companies where one favours freedom of expression at all costs and the other has a limit? Or is this one company seeing a weakness in another and trying to capitalise? Of those two, it's absolutely the latter. If anything else, actually, I'd say Twitter historically has favoured freedom of expression far more than Facebook, not far less. The company, for instance, never did apply any real methods to crack down on misinformation where Facebook has. Twitter has a much more open policy on nudity and graphic content than Facebook. Twitter once described itself as the free speech wing of the free speech party. It's not a social network that merrily goes around censoring things. And so I do think it, the motivation is is that wide open goal combined with the fact that Twitter's not really losing anything. Maybe this is always true at the moment, but it feels like a particularly pivotal moment in politics and thus the the timing of these decisions on Facebook and Twitter's part feels suspicious almost. With the UK general election looming, will UK politicians be looking to what's happening with Facebook and Twitter? Will they know how to deal with it or do you think they're not paying attention? I think UK politicians will be looking. I cannot overstate how irrelevant the UK is in Silicon Valley. The timing may look suspicious, but it's coincidental. And honestly, I think Jack Dorsey would have to be reminded that there are elections coming up in the UK when he sent this. Uh, we're, we're just caught in the middle of a fight between two major American corporations at a time of major upheaval in American politics. Britain goes with the flow. After the break, we'll hear from an expert who has been studying how various parties in the UK could use or misuse social media as they start their campaigns for the upcoming general election. Regardless of what you think about whether content should be regulated or not and whether Facebook should be doing that, I think it's very important that we actually have a broader democratic discussion about well, what is acceptable within an election and what are the standards and principles that we should be holding political actors to. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, we're looking at the issue of political advertising on social media. Before the break, my colleagues Carrie Paul and Alex Hearn talked to me about the latest tete-a-tete between companies in Silicon Valley. How to deal with political ads on Twitter and Facebook. We've seen campaigns and uh, whether political parties or non-party campaigners increasingly move their campaigns online. And But as a lot of listeners might know, last week, UK political parties embarked on their campaigns for the latest general election. The date is set for December 12th making this an unusually short lead-up for those hoping to secure votes. It's partly because they have less activists. They have less people who are willing to knock on doors. And even those that they do have are unlikely to want to be walking the streets in very dark evenings when people are unlikely to open their doors. So um, campaigners are going to have to look for other ways in order to get in touch with people and to be able to share their messages. Dr Kate Domit is a senior lecturer in the public understanding of politics at Sheffield University, as well as a special advisor to the House of Lords Committee on Democracy and Digital Technology. Producer Danielle talked to her last week. So you can directly target a message that you want to a specific group of voters with a high level of precision. So it's a really good way of them getting their message across exactly how they want without having to rely on intermediaries like the traditional media. Last week, my colleague Kate Lyons wrote that barely had the announcement of the general election been made than the online campaigns had kicked off. So we'll see a lot of ads and those will contain videos and um, images designed to catch our attention and to be shared amongst our friends. But we'll also see campaigns using YouTube, um, using ads on YouTube pre-rolls. Um, we'll see memes and, and de- content that's designed to be shared because Social media can be used in different ways. You can pay for content, but you can also encourage sharing and organic material dissemination. That's something that Labour did very effectively in 2017. And I think we'll see other parties and especially smaller parties like the Lib Dems and Greens trying to capitalise on that organic sharing. Just like traditional advertising, the heavier your wallet, the further your reach. Historically, it's always been the Conservatives who've been the largest spenders. The data that we actually have is fairly patchy uh, because the government haven't changed the rules to uh, require more detailed spending on, on digital invoices. So the information we have is incomplete. But what we can tell is that most money is spent on Facebook and most money has historically been spent by the Conservatives. But at the last election, Labour spent an incredible amount on Facebook as well. So we're seeing both main parties invest an awful lot. But there's a huge inequality here. So smaller parties like the Green Party just can't compete because they don't have that financial resource to deploy online. And has that been brought up by the likes of the Greens? Have they um, made an argument against that inequality? Most definitely. So you've seen smaller parties really pushing and and signing up to the idea of reform, especially around political advertising. They're very aware that there's a huge inequity here. And this is quite an established principle of our democracy is that there's equal access to citizens to be able to spread your message. And the thing with political advertising is that it undermines that principle. This established democratic principle is no longer actually being enforced. The Greens and others may have complained in the past, but nothing has changed or will change, at least not for this election cycle. The government's response to the idea of reform around election campaigning has been, uh, I think, lacklustre at best is probably um, a good descriptor. So there is 
incredible consensus around certain aspects of, of electoral law that needs to change to accommodate for digital campaigning, but there's just been no action. Since 2003, for example, the Electoral Commission have been calling for digital imprints, which would allow us to see what's being spent by who more easily in terms of online political advertising. But although the government has said that they accept the idea, they've not actually done anything about it. So we're going into a new election with no new regulations and very little information available about what's actually going to be happening online. When it comes to explaining why there isn't adequate regulation, Kate says we shouldn't be asking her. You know, this is one for the politicians. I can only make a best guess at why this hasn't happened. There's just little impetus from government to actually do something about it. What is their motivation for doing this? Arguably, at the moment, they don't see the incentive or the the urgent democratic need to implement these changes. So right now, the UK lacks regulation that could help to level the playing field on social media. There are, however, ways to track what the politicians are posting, although, as Kate explains, they aren't perfect either. Facebook have created an ad archive, which you can access and go and search for specific actors and see what they've been posting in terms of adverts, how much they've spent and a a very rough overview of who they've been targeted at. Um, Twitter has a, or had, though they've now banned political advertising, but they had a a much shorter duration archive. Um, And Google also makes some information um, publicly available, but it's not easy to find. And to be honest, it's not very accessible to your average citizen. Um, And even researchers are having difficulties getting useful information out of these sources because there's a lot of questions about what is and isn't included, what counts as a political ad, um, and how you actually search these things systematically. So although there is some information available, it's by no means complete, and it leaves us with many questions about what's actually happening. Now that Twitter is banning political ads, Kate believes that Facebook will be an obvious playground for this online campaign, but not the only one. For example, if Boris Johnson's setting up a Snapchat profile um, and Jeremy Corbyn has done the same thing. We also have um, politicians with platform presence on Instagram and also Google and Google ad targeting is going to be important. Something that we also, I think, will increasingly become important is YouTube pre-rolls um, because YouTube is seen as a really good way to reach out to people. And, you know, you have a relatively captive audience of someone who has to watch a video um, advert before their chosen content. Tech companies have agreed in the past that their industry should be regulated. Mark Zuckerberg, when writing for the Washington Post in March, said, I believe we need a more active role for governments and regulators. But in this instance, the governments who set these rules may benefit from this latest change to Facebook's policy. And therein lies a problem. They are the ones who are deciding whether content is regulated or not. And they are a private company that is motivated by profit, not democratic good. The common sense response for me is that you pass responsibility for these decisions to an independent regulator. And indeed, that's something that the government has floated in proposing um, an online harms regulator, potentially an independent body that would remove these decisions from political influence, but would also actively have the powers to enforce and Uh, monitor what it is that social media companies are doing. I think that has got to be the primary way forward here, is that you actually give the power to an independent body to oversee um, what's going on in elections. When asked if she could hazard a guess on which of the UK parties would win the social media battle, she said it's a tough one to predict. 
The Conservatives, I imagine, will do very well on online paid content from the central party um, because that's where their expertise lies. They, they often contract out to companies who specialise in advertising. So I think they'll bring in a lot of external expertise about how to target effectively. Um, I think the Lib Dems and Labour and potentially even the Greens will do much better in terms of organic sharing, you know, creating humorous content like memes that will be widely disseminated. Um, but I think you'll see that kind of content on a peer-to-peer based sharing, especially on Facebook. So I think um, they will do well in different ways. And it'll be interesting to see how much different parties rely on paid content versus organic sharing. As I said to Alex, the speed at which this story escalated last week was intense. But given the general election in the UK in December and the presidential election in the US next year, I'm sure we'll be revisiting this topic again soon. Huge thanks to Carrie Paul in California, Kate Domit in Sheffield and Alex Hearn in London. Make sure to catch up on all of the Facebook and Twitter news at theguardian.com. That's all for this week. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. In den Westin Hotels und Resorts ermöglichen Ihnen unsere Wellnessprogramme, Ihre tägliche Routine aufrechtzuerhalten, egal wohin Sie reisen. Von unserem preisgekrönten Heavenly Bed für einen erholsamen Schlaf über das Sportoutfit Leihprogramm, damit Sie mit kleinem Gepäck reisen können und trotzdem fit bleiben. Zu den ausgewählten Gerichten unseres neuen Eat Well Menüs. Wir sind hier, damit Sie sich unterwegs wohlfühlen. Entdecken Sie einen Ort, an dem Sie nicht nur übernachten können, sondern auch über sich hinauswachsen. Erfahren Sie mehr unter westin.de, Mitglied von Marriott Bonvoy.